Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On The Verge. Welcome to On The Verge, Season 2, as we get started uh, in 2020. uh, We're going to be continuing on our long-form interviews of understanding what makes people great and what charges their batteries up to maintain what it is that they do. Today, I'm bringing in the Managing Director of the Northwestern Mutual Franklin Firm here in Tennessee, a former collegiate tennis player, (laughs) very good golfer, and great friend of mine, Troy Nunn. Troy, how are you today, buddy? I'm doing great, man. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. As we usually start off with a show, we don't we don't do any patty cake questions. We get right <laughs> into it. Okay, what is the most important facets to wealth management that you have implemented into your business model? The most important facets. Yeah. I, well, you know, there's a lot of a lot of people out there that are helping people with their money. Mm. And um, from my perspective, you know, you can put your value in in a lot of different things. So when you say facets, um, what I hear is what I hear that question to mean is what value do you provide? Like, what are the what are the key things that people value? And I think what clients would say um, is that we specifically my team and I focus on helping people make smart choices to achieve the goals that are important to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first thing that I want to know when I'm working with a client, probably like you as a, a golf coach, is what are you trying to do? What are you trying to achieve? What what goals do you have that require money and planning to achieve? Mm-hmm. And once I have a really good understanding of what people are wanting to achieve, I can then begin to help them make some smart choices mm-hmm. with that money. And that could be anything. It could be you know, pay this off or save for this. It could be educate kids. It could be, you know, be becoming financially independent. It could be giving lots of money away. I mean, it could mean any number of things, but if I don't fully understand what those objectives are, then I'm just, uh, I'm just somebody teaching them something mm-hmm. or yeah. educating them on a product or, or, or something out there, or I'm just spouting philosophy. Sure. I think that what you would, I'm, I'm expecting you to say, because I, I recognize what the importance of communication and the open communication and connection is probably the better word that you have with your with your the people that you're being being asked to help yeah. is that that's the that's the most important part is that if they feel like you care, of course that that is the big difference because as soon as you get to know them and you can hear what their dreams are it's a lot easier to streamline the fundamentals that you've learned about finances to like, Hey man, this is, this is the best thing for you from here. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we all start, everybody's coming from a different place, right? Mm -hmm. We've all started, um, our stories and our lives at very different places. I mean, some people grow up in very wealthy families and some of us like, you know, myself grow up in a kind of a middle-class family. My parents were both teachers Mm -hmm. and administrators in education and, so we always had what we needed, but we certainly, every conversation um, about what we were going to do, whether it was uh, 
tonight or tomorrow or the next day or mm-hmm. sports oriented. What it had a money component because there wasn't an abundance of it. Yeah. Um, so and then some people start at literally the poverty level. They start their lives there, and so wherever we start. Um, we have choices and, uh, I don't believe that we all have the same choices necessarily. Yeah. You know, the people that have grow up in a wealthy family have a lot more choices than someone that grows up in poverty. And, and I had more choices than people that in his middle class that, mm-hmm. that grew up in pro- poverty. But what I did realize early on, I studied finance and broadcasting, ironically, since oh, wow. we're on a podcast, I, I studied those things in college. I started to figure out that, um, once you solve the the problem of income, like once you have an income, a living wage, mm-hmm. you know, above the poverty level, um, the rest of the money that you make beyond that th- to meet your basic needs like uh, food, shelter, and transportation. Once you have enough income, because um, that's a really hard problem to solve for a lot of people because yeah. um, they don't start at a good spot. That's right. But once you're there, the money beyond that is... Um, you have a choice yeah, and you have a choice to either save it, spend it or give it away. Mm-hmm. Those are the, or I guess the fourth is pay tax with it. <laughs> so, which everyone seems to hate. I don't care yeah. how much money you make. Everyone, you know, doesn't love paying taxes. Now, some of us appreciate what that tax money goes to pay for more than others. Yeah. Um, but I will say those are those choices and those are hard choices, you know, spend, save, or give. And I think the tension between those choices is the world that I work in. Interesting. The is, triad of choices. It is. It's like, it, it, it simply put, if you sat down with me and you and your spouse sat down with me and we, we figured out what you wanted, ultimately what, where we're going is you have a finite amount mm-hmm. that you're working with and you've got to figure out and choose how much am I going to spend, how much am I going to save, and how much am I going to give away. And you do that after you've paid your taxes. We don't have control over that, but we do have control to some level on the rest of it. Sure. And that's really hard to do today because we're inundated. Everybody in our lives is trying to get us to buy something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? We can't get from, I can't drive from my office to the house without being marketed to probably 15, 20, 30 times by my phone from a billboard, from the radio, from, you know, someone talking to me, Mm -hmm. you know, so there's, there's so much pressure. We're almost, um, prisoners to it. Yeah. Right. And so it sounds simple to say, okay, save, save some money or spend less than you make. It's really hard to do. Oh yeah. No question about it. In our culture. I think it's interesting because your, what you tend to do on a, on a daily basis is coach people through um, a process that will not show a straight vertical ascension in money. Similarly to golf, where if you follow the right processes, I can't guarantee that you're going to win the Masters, and I can't guarantee that you're going to get a college scholarship. But I've not yet seen anybody who's followed the proper processes not achieve the goals they had in mind. Hmm. I just can't guarantee you when it's going to happen. It'd be interesting to hear, I want to hear your perspective on it, you because know, you played great golf, but you were obviously a collegiate tennis player. Mm-hmm. Both sports have their processes, and not everything's going to go your way, even sure. when you perform the best that you could possibly have performed. Right. How did that, how do those two sports help you? 
navigate the unknown, the unforeseen, and the and the moments in which the markets dip, where people have <coughs> very high expectations, probably right. unrealistic expectations right. of what can be made, and how that then, you know, the the down cycles that bring them down. How do you, how do you, what have you gleaned off of the other sports to help you navigate those moments? Well, I think that what I learned from tennis specifically was. Um, if I did these things, then I usually got a positive result. So I, I learned to focus on what I could control, which with tennis, it was my training. Yeah. You know, did I show up <clears throat> at 530 yeah. for the training in the bubble in E-Town, Kentucky? They had a bubble. I mean, I, it was also I didn't have any control over whether that bubble was there. Mm-hmm. There were some rich doctors that decided to build a tennis and swim facility. And I just got lucky, yeah. you know, and they had a bubble. And then there was this guy that played number one in I, IU. He's a great tennis player, played professionally named Frank Ginnerich, amazing guy. And he happened to be plopped down in my hometown. And I started going and, and training with him. And my dad helped financially. And then I worked in the summers picking up trash at the Swim and Fitness Center to pay for it. But I showed up. I could control that. Yeah. Now, my dad helped because he would go work out and I would go with him. But then I'm like in a cold. It kind of feels a little chilly in here. It reminds me of being in that bubble yeah. in Kentucky in the winter at 530 in the morning. And so I could control that. <clears throat> I could also control how hard I worked when I was on the court. Right. I could control how many balls I hit. I could control how long I stayed there. Um, when I wasn't in a training, I could control um, it, you know, what I read about tennis. I remember reading the inner game of tennis and trying to get my mind right. The guy who was training me said, you're a head case on the court. You know, you need to start training. I did some karate stuff to Mm -hmm. help me get focused. Um, But those are the things. It was the time I put into it and the intensity of my training I could control. What happened on the court with tennis, you know, you're competing against another individual with the boundaries of the court. In golf, you're competing against the course. Yeah. Right. Well, the course changes, but it's maybe not as dynamic of a change as another player. So the challenge with with tennis was I I didn't know what I was going to get unless it was somebody I played over and over and over. But I usually I couldn't control how they showed up and what their mindset was and what their strengths and weaknesses were. So I had to really focus on what was my mindset going in. Did I believe I could win? Did I have a game plan? against that guy. So I would do things like watch how they held their racket. I would watch like how they were acting on the court and Hmm. I would try to expose those things. But even that, you know, sometimes you get beat. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so that translates into this business. Like when I'm meeting with a client or I get referred to someone and I'm sitting down with them, I have to accept the fact that I cannot control how they're showing up. I can't control what your story is yeah. around money. That's right. And But what I can do is get really curious to understand it. And if I can do a good job of that, then there's a potential that we can work together and I can be helpful to you. But, you know, quite frankly, that only happened in early in my career when I was building clients. You know, I would work with maybe one out of three people that I met. Hmm. And early on, that was hard because I felt like I was controlling what I can control and I was, but it felt like rejection. The two that didn't become clients felt like rejection when in reality, I just couldn't control their story and how they were showing up and it just wasn't a fit or the timing wasn't right. So actually, 
you know, tennis, like if somebody hit a good shot and I made an, you know, made an error or they, it would just put too much pressure on me and I missed it. Um, they hit a good shot, right? Mm -hmm. I did, I couldn't control that. And so I learned to deal with that type of rejection. The things I didn't like, I didn't like unforced errors in tennis. Mm -hmm. That drove me crazy because I felt like I could control that. Yeah. Like a forehand cross court into the net when he wasn't even at the net was that made me mad, which is why I had to go do karate to get (laughs) stop yelling at myself. But, um, but it's been really helpful that, that tennis is a sport with a lot of rejection. Yeah. Like you're shanking balls. You're doing this like golf is, that's actually my biggest challenge with golf is that you have to really minimize rejection. Like one, one bad sprayed ball can really put a big number on your, on your card, but it's probably the same to some degree that how you handle that sprayed ball is probably the, the key to golf too. Um, but how I handled the rejection early in the career and even now to some degree has been the key. Well, I would have to say that handling rejection in any part or any facet of your life mm-hmm. is very challenging because I can't say always, but most people always put their best foot forward while trying to be the best that they can be. Sure. And when they put when when people do their best and get rejected, it is there's a level of pain there that is uh, that is when learned properly how to like you've done an unbelievable job i actually learned from you on this because i had not really ever thought of it the way you just said it but to be able to recognize what you can control and what is out of your control that you can be curious about that's the word of the day so far for me is how to appropriately be curious is probably one of your great gifts to be able to ask the right questions about being curious about their story, hmm. but yet not being too nosy or not not inquiring enough, knowing how far to dig, and then when you find the gold, you don't need to dig any further. Right. And I think that's that's really important. Well, what you just said, like, for me, the difference between being curious and being nosy, and I've never said this before, but I'm just thinking about yeah. it, is nosy is like curiosity with intent. Ooh, like I'm taking that. somebody somewhere. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm, trying to, I'm trying to find something that I'm looking for. Whereas I think um, Stephen James, a good friend of mine, says that real curiosity is asking a question that you really don't know the answer to. And that takes a certain amount of bravery mm-hmm. and risk. Love that. Like yeah. if I ask a question and I don't know what you're going to say, mm-hmm. um, that's a great question. Yeah. I think that's probably why I love doing this so much is yeah. that I don't mo- – every, every question I ask, I don't have any idea what you're getting ready to say. That's so exciting. <laughs> well, and you could lead me, right? You yeah. could say, well, this is what I think Troy's story's about or whoever you're mm-hmm. interviewing, and you're probably not going to have a very good interview because it's not going to be interesting. That's right. Right? So true. When, when <clears throat> assessing your strengths and weaknesses in tennis, anything else in your life, and in, in, in your business world. There are schools of thought out there that don't really address your weaknesses, stay in your strengths and just keep building your <laughs> mm-hmm. strengths as hard as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. And then there is the the mindset of never take your eye off what made you great, but constantly keep trying to elevate your weaknesses to at least middle ground. Where do you stand on on your weaknesses? Do you just avoid them at most costs or do you try actively spend moments taking things that you're not 
good at and trying to make them at least a six or seven out of ten on your <laughs> on your scale of acceptability, so to speak? You know, so I think about strengths and weaknesses maybe a little bit differently than you described. Like, and I and I agree. Like, we all have strengths and weaknesses. But what I have experienced is that. Um, a lot of my strength and weaknesses are coming from the same thing. For, so for example, mm-hmm. a lot of times my biggest strength is also my biggest weakness. Like, for example, um, I will be late to my own funeral. Um, <laughs> like I was late here this morning. I will be late to my next meeting. I w- and what's so hard for me about that is that I, I believe and have a value that says being late is disrespectful and it costs people money. And so I hate that about myself, that I run late. What I've grown to learn is that part of why I'm late is because I am where I am. And so part of being on time for me would be I've got to really think through how I'm going to end what I'm doing now in order to get to the next thing, Mm -hmm. right? The other reason why I'm late is because I overcommit. So I, my schedule's too tight. If you mm-hmm. saw it, it'd make your head hurt. It might be like yours. You might relate <laughs> to it. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I have a hard time saying no. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a great strength. Yeah, it is. Because I, I get to be involved in lots of things and get to have impact on lots of people. But it also has a really, it manifests as a major weakness, too, because I end up being late, which is disrespectful, and people get irritated. And, um, and so I'm in a constant fight with that. So I don't, I don't know that I would say that I, I mean, I, I understand the schools of thought of like work on your strengths and make those so strong that people ignore your weaknesses and, or work on your weaknesses so that you're more well-rounded. I think it's all in the same stuff. It's like, I'm more interested, I'm less interested in strengths and weaknesses and more about being, um, authentically human mm, yeah. and just being where I am. And I think, um, I want to be where I am and people say, you know, be where your feet are, but I want to be present so that people, when they're with me, feel like they belong there and that they matter to me. Yeah. And cause that's what I want. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's something that we all want. It's, we yeah. all want to feel like we belong and we want to feel like we matter. Yeah. And, um, when I'm not doing that, then I'm not succeeding to me. Yeah. And when I am doing that, then I feel more connected to other people. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I think that that's, that's so, so true in so many ways. I find that when you struggle, like being on time, like you're talking about, mm-hmm. they could be frustrated. But then when they're sitting down with you and they realize how much you care and what you're putting into it, it doesn't take much to realize maybe this guy was running five minutes late because he cares that much about every person and maybe he's going to be with me and then he's going to be 10 minutes late to the next one because he shows the equal amount of interest for everybody. And I'm willing to forgive that because you invest you all the way when you're in their presence. So, okay, I'm sorry I'm late. And then they're hacked off for about a minute until you, they get a sense that you deliver a level of care and integrity to their product and your product. And you're like, Oh, I get it. This guy's, successful and is time crunched and I get it now. So I don't, nobody likes being late, but nobody, there aren't many people out there that provide quality all the time. Yeah. And that's, that's a great, that's a great thing. That's beautiful. 
you now coach a lot of others mm-hmm. um, at Northwestern Mutual to be successful. How has being coached and playing competitive sports helped you be a better leader and coach for your uh, for your team? Well, it, it's it's why I do what I do. I, I did what you're touching on is why I do what I do. I, I had amazing coaches. And I mentioned before, I grew up in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. We called it E-Town. E-Town. So every time I see the Innsworth insignia, <laughs> I think E-Town. I have an affinity for Innsworth for uh, that, even though my kids are at CPA. But, yeah. um, so I was really blessed to have my, – my parents really had a coaching mindset in that they always wanted me to grow and get better at the things that I was doing. They wanted me to put in an effort in the things that I did. And they didn't you know, stand on me. It was always my choice. Um, and I had the same thing with, I mentioned Frank Ginnerich and, um, you know, Jeff True at Western Kentucky. I just, I had some, re- I was blessed to have some great leaders in my life. Um, it's a guy named Kevin Singleton, who was um, a leader in my faith. He was early in my story when I was a teen. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a, a basketball guy. I think he played at Union College. He's mm-hmm. been associated with FCA. And now he does some, I think he's a part of a, a group or started a group called Elevate New York. He's up there now. But. These people um, had such influence in my life, and I think their style, they all, I felt the caring. You know, you mentioned this a few times. I, I call it heart. They, they, they had heart for what they did, and they had a heart for me as a young man um, at these different stages of my life. And I always knew, like, I wanted, I was, that drove me to perform well. Mm-hmm. Right, whether it was in tennis or whatever, like I was motivated to do well and to get better because it felt to me like I was going to disappoint them if I didn't. And yeah. so that was always a motivator. Now we could dig into why mm-hmm. that was motivating to me because I don't think all people would be motivated that way. Sure. Um, I think universally people would rather have a coach that cares than a coach that doesn't. Yeah. But um, I was really blessed to have coaches that cared. So for me, that's informed my desire to be a coach and to have influence on other people. And I think it's made me a better one. I would hope that anybody that I'm coaching or mentoring would say, Troy really cares about what it is that the choices that I make and and the success that I have or the achievement that I have or that I have a high quality of life. I would hope that my clients would say that I care. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the part that um, has really consistently driven me to do what I do. It's it's why, like, for wealth management, you know that that's what I do for a living. That's kind of the core. Like, you know, if you played, ba- if you compared it to baseball, like, I'm a baseball player. I still play. I'm still working with clients. That's my sport. Um, but I realized that there's a really finite number of people that I can impact. Yeah. You know, there's only so many hours in the day, and they'd say a financial advisor can work effectively with about 250 clients. So you, you would have to, wow. as, a, as an investment consultant or a wealth management advisor, um, if you're going to meet with people you know, twice a year, you start doing the math, it's 500 meetings in a year and 200 business days. I mean, that's two and a half to three meetings a day Man. that you have to prepare for and build a team around. So there's only a finite amount of impact I can have. Yeah. And so now you can kind of grow with your clients as they have more wealth. You know, your business can grow. Um, but that didn't really fulfill the amount of impact that I wanted to have in the community and in the world. Mm -hmm. And so um, that led me directly after five years of building a client base in 07, I started the firm 
in Franklin. And so what I started doing is finding other people that were wired, I thought, to do what we do, which the wiring is like a, a combination of drive, um, and they have to be smart, and then they have to be trustworthy, and their, their community has to view them that way. And if we can find those people, I can teach them how yeah. to how to build a goal-based, values-based financial planning practice. And so, but I really do care about them, but this is a um, low retention business. Like utopian retention for someone that comes into our business is like 30 to 40% that would uh, stay in our business for a career. Hmm. Um, the industry is like nine is the average. People that enter financial services, like 9% make it wow. in the career because they, they really struggle to build the habits that you have to build to go build a client base. Because remember the math, I said, you know, you're going to build, you know, we're trying to get to 250 clients. Well, that means if one third of them, the people that you meet are going to become a client, that means you have to go meet with 750 to 1,000 people. Yeah, and the rejection. It's overwhelming. <laughs> and I think, this, isn't that what the hardest part is? Yeah, people quit before, yeah. before they get to that 250 client standpoint. Because once you have 250 clients that you're serving, you know, the revenue that creates will take care of you. And so it's that whole you know, yeah. theory that if you take care of other people, then you'll get what you need. Um, and so we're a service business sure. and people quit before they get there. So ultimately what tennis taught me was to be resilient. Yeah. Like that's probably the quality that ultimately um, anybody in our business, whether they're with our firm or any other firm, they have made it through that client building stretch. Interesting. And they had to be resilient. And the resiliency is the ability to, to, to face and overcome rejection, yeah. in my opinion. That's one definition. How but. much how much of your success and where you are today came from an early strike of luck that let you know that this could work for you? Not so much that you weren't talented, but somebody signed on that gave you some belief that you could do this maybe in your first two or three meetings, you're like, oh, wow, this was, I can do this. Where other people might fail the first 10 or 12. Does, did luck play a role or do you sense that luck plays a role? Or is it kind of pre-wired that you can predict who's going to make it even if they go O for their first 15? Um, so I think there's two questions in there. One is like, were there some moments where I'm like, oh, I can do this? Mm -hmm. You know, and what were those moments? And then the other one is still like, how does that how does that affect other people? What have I seen? Like, yeah. can I predict who's going to make it and who's not going to make it? Yeah. yeah. So the, the first one is, um, yes. And, and if any of the guys, the, the guy that I'm talking about, if he heard this, he'll know who he is, but I'm obviously not going to say his name. Yeah. But in my first year, I went to everybody that I knew just to tell them that what I was up to, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm starting this financial planning practice and, um, I may or may not be able to be helpful to you, but I, I just want you to know what I'm doing because I think I'm really going to love it. Um, and if I can help you, great. Mm -hmm. And I did that as literally as much as I possibly could, which equated to somewhere between 20 and 25 people a month for that first three to six months. And what happened in there, one in particular, um, I'll never forget, he, he committed to saving $2,000 a month. And he was 31 years old. He was about four or five years older than me because I was 27 when I started mm. this business. And that was such a big amount of money to me 
at the time. And I remember he was making $131,000 because he showed me his tax return. And I thought, this guy is loaded. He is so successful. So, like it was, and he was, he had influence over me because I knew him before I came in the business. Yeah. But when he looked at me and said, I trust what you're saying. I believe that what you're saying is true. I think that you have my best interest at heart. I'm willing to start saving $2,000 a month with you. That's when I knew. And that just, I do feel like lucky, blessed. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the right word is, but he believed in me and gave me that shot. And um, that was huge. Yeah. And that was it happened to be in the first two to three months that I had joined Northwestern. Yeah. And his belief in me, he saw something in me that, that I needed someone to see. Yeah. And I don't know what the, all those things were. I, I hope he thought, I think he thought that I was smart enough to handle it. Mm -hmm. And I think he, he thought I was trustworthy. And that, that was big yeah. for me. And so I think that others, when I'm interviewing someone for this career, I, I don't like to call it an interview because that makes it too much about me yeah. and my decision. I'm literally just trying to get to know them and exploring them and seeing if I think it's a good fit. But probably more importantly, do they think they can do it? Because anyone who chooses to come into our career, um, they make a decision to come in. And I have to make sure that I think that they have the background and the ability to create the habits they do meet. That's kind of their geography, right? They, yeah. like the, their story. Like, do they have a story where I hear resiliency in it? Do they have a story that they've had habits in doing something? It doesn't have to be sports, although that's mm -hmm. a good one. But it could be hard work at a job or where they had to deal with rejection and overcome it. If that's in their story, then – and I think they're smart enough and trustworthy enough to handle the complexity of financial products and mm -hmm. planning for people. If I see those things in them, then we'll move forward pretty quickly in the process. But then I call it a mutual fit process. Yeah. It's like – what do you think? What do I think? What do we need to expose to you in our firm? Because I, I believe that people join people. And if I can kind of look at their story and say, hey, they've got resiliency in their story. They've got good habits. They've, they've had hard work in their past. They can probably do the work. I think they're smart. I think they're trustworthy. Then I think you can maybe have 30 to 40% retention because what you can't predict is how they're going to deal with the hard yeah. You, you really just can't predict it. Like I've seen people that I was 100% convinced they were going to be all stars and they collapse in the first month. And then I've seen people that I'm like, ah, I'm not sure. And then they're super resilient yeah. and they love it. And so we all have to take that risk. What, what's, what I'm fascinated about is once people have made the decision to do it, there's a transformation between that decision to where they make it a commitment. Mm-hmm. And the, the process and the difference between a decision and a commitment is something that, you know, I'd love to read more books about, mm -hmm. listen to more podcasts about, because there's, that's, a ch that's a change. And I can see it. Like it, once you've been with us for three to six months, if that transition doesn't happen, then you're probably not going to have the resolve and the resiliency to be successful in the business. Yeah. So do you feel like they come from? They have all the they meet all the requirements that you you have put up there, but they're still not convinced that this is what they want to do. So they'll yeah, I want to do this. This is good. I can do that. And then he's got a good backstory, and then he gets out there. And he's like, 
man, I don't like beating that pavement like that, or I'm not yeah. a good, I'm not good on the calls like I thought I might be, or I thought I was going to make a lot more money in the first four months than I am right now, kind of, kind of stuff. Well, it's it's like I don't remember who said this. Was it Mike Tyson who said, you know, there's you just don't know if you're going to be a good fighter until you get in the ring and get punched in the mouth yeah. or punched in the nose. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's kind of the deal with us. It's like. I, you know, you can look like a, like a, all, you can look like you fit the role, you fit the part. You, you know, I think that you can do it. Um, I just don't know if you will. I don't know if you, if you how you're going to react to getting punched in the mouth because mm-hmm. people are rough. Yeah. And it feels personal. Yeah. When you're starting out in our business, like you think, it, but here, here's a, here's part of the transformation between a decision and a commitment is when, the language changes with a young advisor from everything being fear-based. Like, am I going to make enough money? All the things you just said, am I going to make enough money? Do I have what it takes? I mean, that's the seminal question of a 20 some or a 30 some, which is, do I have what it takes to make it in this world? So they're asking all these questions. And and when their language changes to being all about them, when they start saying things like Troy, you know, I've got this client that, you know, this is the situation and they start, they start talking about that. When they start talking about others, that's part of that transformation. Mm -hmm. Um, because they're starting to realize this isn't about me and my fear. This is about helping others get through theirs. Mm. Right. Cause go back to what I said earlier, what I, what I was saying was my mission statement. My mission statement is to inspire my clients and prospects to make the commitments they need to make to achieve the goals that are important to them. So I'm in the business of helping people make commitments. You, same thing with the golf. You said if they yeah. put the work in, they'll become a great golfer. I think if you make commitments in our business um, to go find clients and really make it about them and help them, you'll be successful. Interesting. And so with clients, I'm just trying to help them make – like they know what their goals are. I'm, I may have to help them figure out the goal. Mm-hmm. But once they understand the goal, then all that's left is to make the commitment needed to make it. Like I'll tell clients all the time, what you – the amount of money that you have in the future is, is only going to do one thing for you. It's going to create options for you and your family. Um, that the decision, the commitment that you make to save it, I don't care if you put it in your mattress. If you save a certain percentage and you save enough, you'll have more than everyone, you know, because you've made a commitment. So my job is to help you make commitments that you wouldn't make without me. That's actually the value that we provide. It isn't like, yeah, we have world-class products. Every, you know, everybody can argue that they have world-class products, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But really the magic in our deal is helping people make commitments. And so that's what I try to do with our young advisors mm-hmm. is like, I need to help you make a commitment to this business and to growing this business. And you have to make a commitment to helping other people. And yeah. once we commit, then people start to take off in anything, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's sports or business yeah, no um, doubt about it. But what does it take to make a commitment? Yeah, I mean, what does it take to make a commitment? Well, you have to be able to overcome the fear of the opportunity cost of not committing. Okay, so the opportunity cost of like I want to I want to save two thousand dollars a month is is a commitment, and it's a challenge because you sit there and think about all the things you could have slash do right. with that two thousand dollars and delayed gratification or whatever you want to call that sure it's the fear of what am i giving up now that i've chosen the road less traveled 
Mm. Well, Chuck Pruitt, our managing partner, always says um, success isn't complex in, in terms of like achieving financially or achieving in business. Um, it's not complex, but it's very difficult because you have to first decide what you want. Mm -hmm. But that's the easy part. Yeah, then the, the hard part is deciding what you're willing to give up to get it. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the business that I'm in, whether it's coaching an advisor or coaching a client is helping them with that competing objective. It's like you, you can't, if you want to have resources in the future, you have to conserve them today. So delayed gratification is exactly right. Like yeah. most of what I'm doing with clients is, is deferred spending. Yeah. It's deferred spending you know, there's, if you're saving in an emergency fund, it's money that you're going to need in the next three to five years. If it's education, it's probably going to, for your kids, it's probably going to happen in the next 20. Mm-hmm. If it's retirement or financial independence, it's going to be in the next 20 to 30 to 40. Yeah. And so depending on your age. Yeah. So you're basically just, you know, foregoing spending something now in the immediate pleasure of that experience or whatever you were going to do with that money um, into the future. But But here's the magic. And this is... If you want to spend your life living, I believe you have to make a commitment to saving a part of it. Because if you don't, you're going to feel anxiety around everything that you spend. So some of the magic of committing to saving is that it frees you up. Because the rest of it, you can either spend it or give it. Yeah. Right? Which are, it feels good to spend money. It's fun. Like, I don't, I want my clients to live and have experiences now. Because if they're saving too much then they can't have anything to give away and they don't, they don't live now. Yeah. And it's like, how do you strike that balance? And that's the, the tension. That is the tension. That's the tension. If you can help people figure that out for themselves, it's a lot of fun. No doubt about it. That's right. All, it's uh, the same thing I tell the advisors. Like if you just work a hundred hours a week, mm-hmm. you're going to burn out. Yeah. Like you got to live. That's right. Like you can run hard for a little bit, but take strategic breaks. Like I used to, this is a tie in with golf. Like my motivator when I was new in my business was golf. So I would set a noon or one o'clock tea time at the legends with Sam Logan. Oh, yeah. Sam's a realtor here in town, yeah. a good friend of mine. And I had to get 20 introductions, like 20 referrals. I had to keep 15 meetings and have 20 appointments scheduled the next week. It, those were my three things. And I had to do a component of that every single day. And mm-hmm. if I had that done by noon, I'd go play golf with Sam. And so a lot of times Sam and I were on the phone together talking about we weren't at our referral goals because he was doing the same thing, but that was our reward Yeah, was to get to go play golf. Now, we would also play with other guys in the club, and we'd meet new people, and that helped his real estate business yeah. and my financial planning business, but that was my win. So part of decision to commitment is what I call um, realizing and recognizing that I'm actually not designed to ask for referrals and set meetings. Like I'm not designed to take that kind of risk. I'm actually designed to sit on the couch and watch TV. Like I'm designed actually to try to make it easier. Yeah. Right. We're, we're, we have brains that are, that are not designed to put um, nuts in a tree. Like that's what squirrels are designed to do. Yeah. We're not designed to follow through on hard work and, and habits that create results. And so once I accepted that, I was like, well, then I got to put some, I got to like make it a game. Yeah. And so making like putting something that was a, both a win and a loss. Like if I didn't get that done by noon on Friday, I had to stay there and make phone calls. Yeah. And I would do all kinds of crazy stuff during the week to meet new people. 
so that I could go play golf on Friday. So it was a, it was a win or a loss. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a carrot or a stick. Now, eventually that wore off, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And I had to really dig deeper to, to find my purpose in the business Mm -hmm. because I got kind of tired of playing the game. Um, but it worked for a long time, Yeah, you know, and you uh, evolved. I evolved. Right. I mean, eventually, I mean, it was like, we'd go play golf anyway. Yeah. Right. So I had to come up with something new. <laughs> I'd be like, do you hit your goal? And he'd be like, no, but no, let's go play. Let's anyway. go play. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> we'll, hit a, we'll hit a different goal on the golf course. Yeah. What is, what has the evolution of life uh, taught you that you would not have believed right after you graduated from college? And what I mean by that, when I, when I speak, especially when I go speak at colleges, I talk all the time about, you know, some of the, most of these kids are between 18 and 22. So I'm like, what you think is important right now in your life, you will actually laugh at at age 25. And when you're, when you're 30, you will laugh at what you thought was important at 25. And when yeah. you're 40, you'll <laughs> laugh at 30. And, yeah. and about 50, you kind of like, you, you, you're less surprised for the next 20 years. But what you, the decisions you make at 25, if they're not properly based around pure life fundamentals, they will ultimately probably come back to be a big burden for you at age 30 or 35. <laughs> what has the evolution of your life taught you that, is, and that, that would, it would probably say that it would shock you the most from the college version of Troy Nunn? Oh, gosh. That... I, I would say I'm a totally different guy than I was then. Um, and that actually would surprise me. But, but I think it's, it's a great question. Um, I was really caught up with asking myself the question, do I have what it takes? You know, there, there was always something in me that wanted to have success. I wanted to get better at whatever I was doing. And, um, I think that that I didn't understand and I'm still grappling with the fact that um, money, wealth, success, achievement is, I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but there's always another level to it. And there's like, um, who's the guy? John Travolta. Like he pulls his 747 up to his house. <laughs> I mean, like, there's a, that is a level, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. That is a level that I am not likely to achieve. So, I don't think I fully would have understood that. Um, actually, stopping tennis was one of the moments where I realized that was the death of a dream to some degree. Because mm-hmm. I don't know that I thought I would be Pete Sampras or Andre Agassi, which I'm dating myself, but. Mm-hmm. You know, those that was kind of the pinnacle of tennis at the time. Um, and I, I, I didn't have the illusion that I would be one of them, but I did identify as an athlete. And so I spent a lot of time in my 20s chasing, you know, I love soccer. And so I went and joined a, a soccer league, a men's open league with a bunch of guys that played college soccer. And I was worse than all of them. And I was like trying to get better at it. And I was like, I could be as good as them. And I just started realizing like the, the chase and the pursuit to be – important or to be successful or to have money that when you get there and you feel like you have some success and you have some money to spend, you realize that it's not what it's about. 
because you you sit there and go, well, Beautiful. what now? Mm-hmm. What now? And mm-hmm. I think that's that's what's interesting about this phase in my career because a lot of my clients are in their forties and fifties, and a lot of them are looking to the performance of an investment or or they're look they're trying to find meaning and purpose in something that just might not have meaning and purpose. purpose yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> you so know, true. I mean, there's a lot of data that suggests that when you, when men retire and I don't, I don't think the statistics are the same with women. Cause I think women more naturally find purpose in other things yeah. a little bit easier than men do. And mm-hmm. we put so much pressure on ourselves for career mm-hmm. and success and status and ego and all this stuff. Um, but you know, men die within like seven years of retiring on average. And so I love the concept of pro-tirement and I'm seeing that show up in clients all the time where they're, they're retiring from a career and they're pro-tiring into something different. And I've seen this in my dad, my dad pro-tired, he laughs when I say it, but from education, administration and education at the age of 56, which at 45 now, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, but he has spent the rest of his life working in the church and working on nonprofit boards and being a grandfather and all this stuff. And I am infinitely grateful for that example that he's portrayed because he realized pretty young in the grand scheme of things that, you know, we, we all, I I think we all want to have meaning in life. Right. And that's the thing I don't think I understood when I was 23 is that life is about relationships and about connection and about meaning. And, um, you know, it's really hard to, I mean, we all desire a meaningful life, but it's really hard, I think, for men to have a meaningful life without meaningful work. But we wrap up um, meaning in our work and we attach it to the amount of money we make or the amount of status we have. And um, I don't think all those things are bad, Mm -mm. but... When they get out of balance. They can get really out of whack. And Mm -hmm. if you're chasing that, yeah. I don't know that you're ever going to find real connection and joy in your relationships in your life um, because a lot of my pursuit of success and what that meant to me yeah. um, has has been hurtful to you know people in relationships and mm. it's it's at times made it very difficult for me to be present at home. It's been made it difficult for me to be present with my friendships and my relationships. And so that success has come at a cost. And mm-hmm. so I learned, I started to learn in my thirties that, um, you know, you can grow a business, you can grow a firm, but growth in all ways, there's a price to be paid for it. There's yeah. a cost to it. And so right. I'm better now at measuring <clears throat> what that cost is, which is allowing me to rest. So one of my weaknesses is I overcommit, yeah. you know, it's a strength and a weakness, but I've learned to say no. Mm-hmm. Now, my friends that will listen to this, especially those that are with Northwestern, if, they, if they're listening, they, they'll laugh because I still struggle with overcommitment and saying no. But I am better. But you're a better version I'm of I'm a yourself. better version of that, which I think, I hope, makes me a better husband and a dad mm-hmm. and a friend. Certainly it will. You know? Well, as we shift our gears from what has made you successful in your business life to what it is that you do to recharge your batteries, historically speaking, the the experts out there believe that most of the time that comes from doing things that a lot of other like-minded people are doing and are taking the time to enjoy sporting events and or mm-hmm. sports, mm-hmm. whether you're watching it on TV with a bunch of people or you're at the game itself, live music and or sitting in just listening to music. And then the the, the part that I'm, I'm gluttonously into which is the the food and wine piece and the the marriage Mm -hmm. of food and wine but the art of making wine 
uh, and how wine has ultimately led a very long life in connecting others. Hmm. Um, talk to me about music. What's your favorite music? And like, what do you like to listen to? Oh, man. Um, you know, to be honest, my, my wife will laugh at this question because um, her and my daughter and my kids, they listen to music all the time. And I actually play music. I, I play mm. piano by ear, guitar. Oh, wow. I can sing. And I grew up with a very musical family. And that's actually kind of an interesting part of this journey for me is if you would have known me in college, I was the guy you know, that would play a guitar song. I could, you know, I just loved music. And, yeah. and when you say, what do you listen to? I actually listen to less and less music today than I probably ever have in my life. And it's because I'm filling that time in the car, I'm on the phone or I'm listening to a podcast and I'm just so hungry to learn yeah. and grow in the areas that I'm growing that I listen to less music than I used to, but I'm finding that, um, I need to listen to more and it, this is going to be really embarrassing, but when I did all my annual planning, instead of listening to a podcast or I started listening to music while I was doing my planning mm -hmm. and I was listening to, <laughs> this is really awful. <laughs> I was listening to the soundtrack. Um, even my daughter made fun of me cause I was on Spotify uh -huh. and she texts me and she was like, I can't get on the Spotify account cause you're on it. And she goes, and I just want to point out, you're listening to the soundtrack of the greatest showman. <laughs> <laughs> this is, yes. I am a, I am a guy's guy. And so that's hard for me to admit, but there's something about that, that, that was a great film, movie. that movie. That was a great movie. And the music is really incredible. It, it is, it is inspiring. Yeah. It, I connect to it. It's elevated from our story. Yeah. I mean, one of the lines in it, you know, he says what I've been putting off, it starts tonight. It starts, tonight. you know, I've been blinded by the lights of success mm. like that the whole barnum and bailey circus like he he got caught up in the success and he's like i forgot what i was doing it for yeah and that's my story yeah is everything that i've done to build success was for kim and my kids and to build relationship and i got blinded by the lights of it for a long time and that strikes i mean you can tell i'm a little yeah. emotional saying it i mean it yeah. strikes a chord with me like you know, we can't forget what we're building. Like, what are you building success for? And and I think if you forget that, then you'll lose it all. Yeah. And that's so what the, that true. song, you know, from now on, from that soundtrack, mm -hmm. that's what it's about. He's like, I'm not going to do that anymore. What I did this, you know, I'm, it starts right now. Mm -hmm. And so um, I don't know the story of the rest of his life. Yeah. But if that movie's true, then he spends the rest of his life connected to his wife and his family and what he started the whole thing to build for. Yeah. And, um, that's the thing. I mean that, so music can sometimes tell story yeah. and connect you. And so one of the, I don't do new year's resolutions, but I am, I'm, I'm trying to integrate music because I listen to music two times mm -hmm. when I'm, when I'm working out and I'm on a long run or a long bike ride, I would keep one ear pot in, mm -hmm. um, and I find that when I'm alone and I'm listening to music, it's a very, it's where I'm the most connected to my faith and the, it, it's spiritual to me. Mm -hmm. And for me, it really, I could listen to um, The Greatest Showman. I could listen to country. I could listen to rock. I can listen to, you know, inspirational kind of Christian-based music. Yeah. I just love music. 
Mm-hmm. And um, you're touching on something that there was a big part of my life where I lost that. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm working on reconnecting to it. Um, and it's helping me, I think, you know, lower my blood pressure and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it's hitting me somewhere that, that I haven't been hit in a while. Yeah. Man, music runs a lot of my life. I'll listen to songs and it'll take me to a place. It's kind of bizarre. Like I can listen to like Alice in Chains, Dirt, like it's like <laughs> 1990, 93-ish, 90, 92, 93-ish. Oh, gosh. And every time I hear, you know, wood or them bones or something like that, it throws me right back to Birmingham because I was driving through Birmingham on my first internship and I couldn't find my apartment that I was, that I, that I had, that I had not yet even been to that the university had set up for me. And it was like one o'clock in the morning. I'm driving through a C grade area of Birmingham. I have no idea where I am. This is way before GPS. And it was a very stressful because I, I drove by it like 17 times because it was so nondescript. It didn't even look like it was an, an apartment hmm. that I was stressed out. And like that's that album played probably two times because it took me over an hour to find it because I couldn't get out of my car at one o'clock in the morning and start banging on doors, you know? So I'm like, so every time I hear those songs, it throws me right back as I'm driving by Johnny Ray's barbecue. <laughs> I'm like, ah, oh, where is this place? Um, but music is so powerful. I'm, I'm a story guy. I love listening yeah. to yeah. the lyrics and people passing on their story. Yeah. And I'm a rock guy more than I'm a country guy. And uh, as I've had the opportunity to interview some uh, musicians and songwriters, and I got more coming on in the next 10 days, like three, it's going to be awesome. The thing that I'm most interested in, maybe why I haven't really connected so much with country, although I'm gaining on that, is that because they don't, most of them don't write their own songs. Mm, The artist. The artist. Yeah. That it's, they're they're singing a song awesome, Mm. but it's not their song. Yeah. You know, when I'm listening, I remember, like, when I went to see Eddie, like, Pearl Jam in 1992. Yeah. And I'm, you know, it's a lot of and It's a big festival. And, you know, Pearl Jam was nothing then. Yeah. And I'm, like, the front row. And I'm listening to him sing, like, Release, which is one of their biggest first songs. The pain that he was singing through yeah, was so powerful. You know, and he's from me to you, essentially. Yeah. And, like, listening to him sing... I'm like, no matter how sad I am, yeah, I'm not that sad. Hmm. And it was like that's powerful for me. And then yeah. another one of my favorite bands was Pantera, and Pantera hmm. is like the greatest metal band of all time. But the fir- when I went to see them, <clears throat> I was in a very angry point in my life. A lot of hmm. things that were starting to come out about what was so challenging about my youth. Some of the secrets were coming out, and I was really mad that I wasn't being told the truth. Hmm. So I'm loving Pantera, and I'm all thinking that I'm bad too. And <clears throat> he's he's you know Phil Anselmo singing these songs, and he is madder than I have ever been. Hmm. And the pain that he's had to endure, hmm. that has cultivated all the great music that he's made, is a level of pain that I can't even fathom. And it gives me a level of respect, one, for myself to not let my mind make it bigger than it really is, Hmm. the pain. Mm -hmm. 
but to be appreciative that I have the ability to express it, but to also see somebody expressing a level of pain that is significantly worse than a couple of half-truths that mildly altered my sporting life when I was a kid. So I love listening to those stories. Now, as I get older, I'm less angry and more apt to want to hear a song about somebody's pickup truck (laughs) and how much it meant to them or something like that. But I mean, like recently my youngest son's like, Daddy, have you ever listened to Luke Combs? And I'm like, no, I haven't listened to Luke Combs. (laughs) He goes, this is my new favorite song. And my boys love music too. So they constantly feed me their new versions of their favorite songs. And now I'm like this huge Luke Combs fan because – He's writing his songs and he's passing on. Hmm. At least the songs that I love are the ones that he writes. Yeah. And it's kind of funny. So it's, it's interesting that, you know, music connects with everybody. Yeah. But it, on different levels, and some people put it down and pick it back up, like where you are. And I'm, well, whether I put it down or not, it's really kind of hard <laughs> to ever tell. But I love music. What's the best concert you've ever been to? You know, somebody asked me this question the other night, and um, my answer was the Coldplay concert probably 10 years ago at Bridgestone. Man. And the person that I said that to was infinitely disappointed with that answer. Man, well, I don't know why they were disappointed, but it, it happened at a time. It was just really special to me. And you so know, Kim and I, um, they're, they're kind of like our generation's um, U2 yeah, to me. So they, they, they strike that. You can see there's some themes in my, you know, what I'm thinking about actually, like I loved U2 when I was young. It used to be really inspirational. Coldplay, you know, this greatest showman. They're all like inspirational. So I'm thinking because you connected the bands that you really loved, yeah. like, you know, Pearl Jam and Pantera. There was direct emotion, you know, the sadness yeah. with Eddie Vedder and the, you know, the anger yeah. <laughs> with Pantera. There was like, it made you feel part of something. You were like, okay, I'm really pissed off. This guy's really pissed off. Yeah. Like, let's we're go. Together. We're together. We're together. Yeah. We belong. Yeah. Right. Because right. we all want to belong that's and matter. And, you know, so for true. me, there's, there's, I got to do some work thinking. You got me thinking, like, what is my connection to that style of music? Because, you know, Coldplay, there's something just, really inspiring about what they figured that that pulse that they've gotten into. And it just, it feels authentic. It feels real. You know, I think for some people it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel hard enough. Yeah. You know, because it's not, their music isn't really sad. It's very thought provoking. Like they're very intricate in their real, how they relay their emotions because like the ghost album was coming off of his divorce with Gwyneth Paltrow uh and how painful and difficult that was. And then, the next one after that was the uplifter of I made it through yeah. the valley of death <laughs> to overcome. Yeah. It's an, it's an overcome oh, story. So, yeah. and now, up until this newest album that they just put out, I can't even think of a bad song that they have between Parachutes to Rush of Blood, X and Y. I mean, all of it. This new one that they put out, Dud City. <laughs> oh, I can't even believe it. And I love Coldplay. Oh, it's, yeah, and it's I haven't even I haven't spent enough time in the new album to to give you an opinion. But but I probably it's funny that you say that because Ghost is probably my least favorite, and it's because it may be because it's really sad. Because I've spent a a large part of my life trying not to be sad. Yeah, and so that's one of the the feelings that I try to stay away from. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so there might be a connection to that. Oh yeah. You know, I'm a like a hero's journey guy. Like I love the overcome and oh, yeah. you know, and that's a lot of their music, like you're saying. Mm-hmm. And so I, I didn't realize that Ghost was right after the divorce with Gwyneth, but yeah. um, that's probably there, there's probably some. Uh, peeling back of that onion I need to do. <laughs> Maybe I need to go listen to that album it's so funny. over you, and over. You mentioned that you were a U2 guy. So when I grew up, we're, we're basically the same age. Yeah. My school broke off, especially with the guys, between Guns N' Roses and U2. <laughs> and, you know, and then, you know, there's Guns N' Roses, Metallica, and then U2 Depeche Mode. Oh my gosh. You know, yeah. like that world, right? Yeah. Well, I was the biggest Guns N' Roses fan ever. Axel spoke to me like nobody's ever spoke to me, especially at age 17, 18, 19. So like we hated going, we didn't go to parties to the YouTube Depeche Mode people's house because we were going to listen to garbage music. Right? Those dudes are weak. Those dudes are weak. They're soft. But now when I look back on it, I'm a, I'm a huge YouTube fan now, but it was so funny how we like, there's like seven or eight guys that were Guns N' Roses that's so fanatics, awesome. and we're like, That's we're not so going awesome. to those Depeche Mode, too. Yeah, <laughs> they, those feel soft. Those, uh, those, but here's what's interesting: in high school, I was Guns N' Roses and Metallica. My first song that I was one from Metallica that I learned oh. on the guitar. So, I actually in high school loved them. I didn't find you two until I was out oh, in my twenties. And so I was way late to the game with you mm-hmm. two. So I probably and I never got into Depeche Mode. I, I probably would have really liked them in my twenties. Probably hated them when I was yeah. in high school. We probably could have hung out. <laughs> we could have definitely hung out. <laughs> so Both good. a bunch of you know, a couple of hack athletes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so obviously That's you played awesome. you played collegiate tennis. But were there any other sports or sports teams that you clung on to when you were a kid, going through you know all the way up until now? Well, but I mean, were there I'm any from really Kentucky, big? so. Oh. You know, the question everybody asks me is, were you a Louisville or are you a Kentucky fan growing up? And my answer, I look at them with steel in my, I just, it fires me up and I'm like, I'm a Western Kentucky fan. <laughs> and they go, that's not what we're asking you. I was like, I know what you're asking me. But when you get to Western, so I grew up a Louisville fan uh-huh. as a kid. All my family was Kentucky fans. My dad worked for the University of Kentucky for a while. And so, but I wanted to go against the grain a little bit, so I chose Louisville. I had a Louisville lamp. Oh I had a Louisville, you know, comforter on my bed, Louisville pillow. You know, it was – I was a Louisville guy. And then football, I was Dallas. Mm-hmm. And so all my – you know, all my uh, friends, it was – at the time, it was either Dallas or the Steelers. Yeah. That was kind of the the choice. And my family – I was born in Texas – at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, and I had a lot of family in, in Houston and Dallas, and so I, my family were Dallas fans. So I jumped on the bandwagon there. So mm. those are the the seminal teams. But when I went to Western um, Kentucky, everybody would come to Western and wear their Kentucky and Louisville gear. And I was like, why don't you take your big blue butt and go to Kentucky to school? Like, Because I was friends with all the the football players and the basketball players and cause we didn't have like a facility for each sport yeah. you know, at Western. Like we were D one, yeah. but we weren't yeah, SEC were, D one. Yeah. And so we were a mid major. And so, and I got really irritated with Louisville and Kentucky cause they like, it wouldn't come play, play us in basketball. Cause we had two sweet 16 teams yeah, absolutely. in 92 to 96 when I was playing there. So we had great basketball program. Our football was still one double a. And so that we didn't really have a dog in the hunt, but, um, I just it felt weird to me for people to to show up to Western and we're fighting to win for Western Kentucky and they're cheering for Kentucky and, and even to the point where if we played them like we beat Louisville when I was there in basketball and it's like if we played them they would maybe cheer for the other school that kind of fired me up yeah. so 
I, I've I've held that grudge a little bit against, especially if you're a Western grad, yeah. and you you would cheer for Kentucky or Louisville against Western. That gets me all fired up. Like I'll debate that with you and argue with it. Now I've gotten over it to some uh, degree, but um, you know, since I've been in Nashville, you know, I picked up the teams. Like I'm a Titans fan and Preds, Preds fan, and that's actually a funny story because I started playing ice hockey at age 30. Oh, so wow. my addiction to sport is is not healthy. <laughs> um, but I actually am more of Love a it. player of sport. <clears throat> which has been hard in my 40s because yeah. I can't do all the craziness. I st- things start to break <laughs> when you get to your 40s. But yeah. I started playing ice hockey because a buddy at church that I played um, rec soccer with asked me, he said, hey, would you want to come and play <coughs> hockey? And I was like, I looked at him and I was like, hockey? Why, would I, why are you even asking me this? I've never been on ice skates. Literally, a buddy of mine and I, he asked, and it was Matt McLean, another guy here in town, he played, um, I think, club soccer in college. He's a great yeah. athlete. Um, we literally went to play it against sports and bought all the hockey gear for like 100 bucks and showed up for a game. <laughs> <laughs> I was worse than a pylon. <laughs> like, I was using the stick to, I was using the stick to not fall down. <laughs> that was your tripod. <laughs> it was my most humbling athletic moment. About, I, thought, I fancied myself pretty athletic until I started trying to play hockey. I think hockey players are the most well-rounded athletes on the planet. You'd be hard-pressed to argue. I bet you could put a really great hockey player in any sports arena, and they're going to do pretty daggone well because it requires everything that an athlete needs. Yeah. You know, endurance, strength, speed, quickness, hand-eye coordination, balance. You name it, they have to have it. Yeah. There's nothing you can be weak in. Yeah, there's not many sports also that require straight line speed and rotational speed simultaneously. Yeah. Like, like basketball is pretty much straight line. Golf is rotational. Yeah. Tennis is kind of mostly rotational. Obviously, running to the ball, but it, yeah. the motion is circular. But hockey, man, it Dude. is forward, backward, side to side, and rotational. It and is everything. It's like football on ice skates. <laughs> like those guys are moving faster than football players are when they hit. Yeah. And then they got they're hitting them into walls. I mean, they're tough. They're fat. I mean. I have tons of respect for those guys. I've, sure. I've actually played golf with a couple of uh, professional hockey players, and they can just crush it. Their hand-eye oh. coordination is ridiculous. I mean, they're hitting now. I mean, even at a rec league level, like B and C league hockey here, it's hard to see the puck. Oh, and I have pretty good hand-eye coordination naturally. It's it looks like a penny coming <laughs> at your face at 100 miles per hour. Like you know, even at 50 miles per hour or whatever they're doing the yeah. rec league, I can't imagine what the I don't. Like they used to put me because I have pretty good hands. They would put me at center because I couldn't be a winger or because def- I couldn't skate backwards well. But I eventually yeah. found up I could go forward and backwards and cause a bunch of commotion in the middle. Uh-huh. And if they hit slap shots, I could see it and get my stick on it to redirect it. So that was my only talent. Mm, interesting in hockey was to be able to see the puck. But I'm telling you, it's not easy to it see. It is definitely not and so easy. So you put these guys in the ball like a golf ball is just right there, and they can hit it. I mean, I don't know if you've played or coached any hockey, hockey guys, yeah, they but they can freaking it. hit the ball. Yeah. The ground, it, the ground forces that they need for a slap shot are infinitely more difficult than a golf shot. And the, the amount of precision for the stick to hit the puck correctly is way more challenging than the ball off turf than a puck off ice. That's a great point, yeah. So they, like Brett Hull, 
beats the bejesus out of a golf ball. <laughs> Thunder is what he hit. Man, it's it's pretty impressive. Well, and I bet he I bet they can control it pretty well too. Like oh, they yeah. they've got to have a different feel in their hands. Yeah. On the kind of spin they're putting on it or mm. what have you, but Well, their um, right hand is the blade. Yeah. You know, so they learn how to control their right hand and control the So if they're a righty, they push through the ball. So mm. they're not pullers. Not with well, their left hand or they, I, I they think push. everybody's got like if you had 100 people Mm-hmm. Out there, there's probably 60 right-handed pushers and 40 left-hand pullers. Okay, but it's only because of their 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 fast twitch muscle makeup and how they brace against themselves against essentially. and what they did, what other sports they played yeah. that got them in there. Yeah, yeah, so true. Yeah, so true. Do you, are you uh, do you like wine and or you know getting together and and having you know group of people wine and some good food and bring a bunch of like-minded people together and hang out. Yeah, man, I love community. Um, I do, I do enjoy wine. I have found, I feel like my answers are disappointing to you. That's what I'm feeling right now. (laughs) There's no disappointing. (laughs) The, uh, so I'm not, I'm not passionate about wine, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's funny because, you know, in my business, there's lots of dinners, there's lots of going out. I I love people. So I do love dinners and being out Mm -hmm. with folks. And I've, I've been blessed to have, amazing wine you know with northwestern and the traveling sure. and on the the different dinners we've had um i have found that i really enjoy um red wine but it gives me a headache mm. and so i've been reading about that um even if i drink one or two glasses of wine which is about the most i would drink yeah. i'll wake up with a headache and and th- i've been told that it has something to do with the tannins and i've been recommended to drink old world wine which, you know, French wines and et cetera, mm-hmm. that for some reason, the way that it, they, something to do with the grapes mm-hmm. that in it, um, that it wouldn't give me headaches. And so I've been trying some of that. I don't have a favorite yet. It's mm-hmm. just on the tip of the iceberg, but yeah. I really want to love all red wines. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a few that I really like. There's a Stag's Leap Artemist that is just phenomenal. It is so good. It's so good. And I, I don't get a headache with it. Why I don't know. the The Camus Forty is just beautiful, and I enjoy it. Um, well, you're just now you're talking about the processes are so elite at Stag's Leap Wine Cellars and Camus. Okay. Yeah, that if there's more. It's there's a lot that goes into it. It's not just the tannins. It's the preservatives that mm. are put into the wine in America mm. that are not put into the wine mm. in, in Europe that stays in Europe. Like yeah. the people who travel to Italy or France yeah. for a vacation that have the same problem. I teach, I teach probably five or six people that have this same issue. Yeah. They go over there and then they, they don't ever get any headaches. Hmm. And it's, I cannot, it's the sulfites. It's the sulfites that are put into the uh, wine okay. to preserve it. That, that and the taste, but mostly it's the sulfites that cause the headache. Okay. But, you know, that's why they're telling you, except the one thing that they moderately forgot is that if they want to ship their awesome wine that they've made in Bordeaux to America, they've got to put sulfites in it uh, to come to America. Okay. It's part of our deal. Hmm. Preservatives. Well, I, you know, I love people. And yeah. so as an only child, so I grew up as an only child. And as soon as I say that, everybody becomes a child psychologist. And they're like, oh, <laughs> oh, that explains, oh, that explains oh, everything. That go. explains yeah. it all. Yeah. It explains why you're late places. <laughs> explains, you know, but I need, you asked this question earlier. I, I need a lot of alone time. 
and because I had a lot of it when I was a kid. And so, but it also created where I have no boundaries. Like, and this drove my wife crazy because she has five brothers and sisters. And so like, to me, it was weird that she had to guard her plate. Like I would try to take some of her food and she would like stab my hand with her <laughs> fork. Because, <laughs> you know, you know, people think about only children as being selfish. When in reality, I desired connection with other kids so much because I didn't have, I have any, yeah. a bunch of kids around me that it actually has made me a real people person. Because yeah. like I like to think through things like this, like mm -hmm. whenever Mike Blivens is one of my really good friends. And so when, when I, and he's in the same world and business that I'm in mm -hmm. and I would rather call and talk out an issue than to go sit and on my own and, and think about it. Yeah. And that's how I make, I make decisions better when I'm thinking them out loud with people that I like, respect and trust that, that have some, something to say about what it is that I'm thinking about. And, um, but I've also realized that I need that alone time. Yeah. And, um, so if I get enough alone time, which I'm now doing through, you know, working out or whatever, I mean, I'm in my own head. If I get enough of that, then I'm much better when I'm with people. But I love like going out to dinner and lunch. I mean, that's one of the great things about my career. Yeah. Like I can have a breakfast, a lunch and a dinner every day yeah. with other people. And, um, you know, we still like our kids are all playing sports and, but we still, it's really critical that we have dinner together at least two or three times during the week. Yeah. Um, and as the kids get older, our, my daughter's 16, son is 13 and, and youngest daughter is 10. They play volleyball, soccer, and gymnastics. That's kind of their, their chosen sports. And then Olivia's kind of shifted away from sport to doing some plays at school and some things. But when you do that in today's culture, like they're gone from four to eight, yeah. like we're all running around and it's, it's scary to me. Um, but you don't want to withhold them. You don't want to keep from them from these yeah. opportunities. And so we just have to really, uh, Kim and I covet the, the, and we make it a priority to, to sit at the table and connect and talk. And we want to do it even more. Yeah. Right. But we're doing okay mm -hmm. right now if I'm judging ourselves, yeah. but, um, you know, just getting together I mean, we start with our family, but you know, we love going out with friends and sure. hanging out. And, and for me, I really want to love wine. I really want to be into, you know, bourbon and whiskey and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, and I've realized, like, I actually have found I really like rum. Really? This is like, I'm, like, never, I'm never. like drunk, drinking rum by myself listening to, um, this is so <laughs> masculating <laughs> to me. Like I'm listening to show tunes and drinking rum. Like my buddies now, I don't care anymore. My buddies, um, like when we go golfing, if I get a drink, it's going to be a rum and pineapple. And can you even imagine the jokes that I'm suffering through when especially everybody's know, having like especially a... Especially knowing some of your friends. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like they're like, okay, here's Troy. Do you want an umbrella with that? And I'm like, yes, actually, I would love an umbrella with that. Yes, I do. But so I've funny. actually, um, I did this whiskey tasting and, you know, if I'm from Kentucky and live in Tennessee, yeah. if you don't love bourbon, like What's I'm out. That's right. There's something really wrong with me. And I do like it. Like I can sit, the other night I was with some friends and we were sipping on a you know, a Blanton's just neat. And uh -huh. I enjoyed that. Um, but I did a tasting, um, at a resort where they did all the way from scotch to bourbon. And I, fi I figured out that I like scotch. 
That was a weird thing. Interesting. I like the smokiness. The peaty smokiness. The peat, yeah, from yeah. the peat mash. I love that. Mm-hmm. It, it feels like I'm at a campfire. Maybe mm-hmm. it, it's probably connected to something growing yeah, up it, or it whatever. Prob- but it, it'll yeah. probably start to become something that you do once or twice a year that is tied to something that that's externally outside. That's yeah. not has nothing to do with drinking it itself. Is just like it kind of reminds you of something else. Yeah, but I'm such a lightweight dude. I can I can have one drink and I, and I just if I if it's a lot more than that, then I'm gonna feel bad. And mm-hmm. these days, like my choices around food and drink are to, we talked about this yeah. coming back from Sweetens Cove. Like I, I'm so connected with like how food or drink impacts how I feel. Yeah that day or the next day that I've started eliminating things that don't make you feel that good. don't make me feel good. Yeah. And so like for me, bourbon, I don't feel good. You know, if I drink too much of it, I, you know, it, it's, it's not good. Mm-hmm. And so I don't do that. But even if I drink a little bit of it, if it's more than I need to, like, I'll feel bad. Yeah. And it's like, I don't, I don't need that in my life. I'm too old and I'm too sensitive to everything yeah. and how I feel that um, I want to eat things that make me feel good, which unfortunately has led me to not eating very much meat for the last five months. I've mm-hmm. eaten very, very little to no meat or animal products. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has nothing to do with some sort of diet or, you know, just I'm not like upset feel. about how animals are hurt. I mean, I, I don't necessarily think that's great, but um, I just don't feel great when I eat it. And um, I feel a lot better. Without it. Without it. And so I'm a little irritated about that because I really yeah. enjoy... Well, again, opportunity I cost. really enjoy... Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. I really enjoy um, a great steak or... Mm-hmm. Like, I really do. And so um, I'm not committing to never eating it again. But I'll tell you, like, I, I will eat it, I think, for the rest of my life, much, much, much less. Yeah. If I can eat more and more plants and less and less meat, I think that my life experience if I'm blessed enough to live another 40, 50 years, like, um, I think it'll be higher quality. Yeah. Um, and then maybe like the things that I do choose to eat or drink that I really, really enjoy them. Like why make your, yeah. Like why make, yeah. (laughs) You're pulling all this. I mean, (laughs) why, why drink something or eat something that, um, doesn't, isn't good for your body and that you don't really, really enjoy. Now, some of these things, like I really love vanilla ice cream. And I don't have very much of it, but now when I do, it's really special. Mm-hmm. Like it actually tastes better. Mm-hmm. It's weird. Yeah. Um, but so anyway, true. so that's, that's my so food true. and wine stuff. You I know? love it. I love it. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm ending my shows this year differently <laughs> than I did last year. Usually I had one or two big thought provoking <laughs> questions. Now we're going to have a little more fun. Uh, this is just merely a sim- simple questions of you selecting who you think is the best. Roger Staubach or Troy Aikman as a Dallas Cowboy fan? Troy Aikman. Troy Aikman. That's just my that's who time. You grew up. That's my time. Yeah. Like, you know, I don't know all the stats, mm-hmm. but Troy Aikman I loved watching Troy Aikman. That was a great football. Team. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. No doubt. Rod Laver, Andre Agassi, Pete Sampras, Rafa no- Novak, or Fed. Who's the best tennis player of all time? So Federer is hands down the best tennis player that I've – the first time – that I saw him play. I was somewhere, I, I think I was in college, maybe a little bit after. I just watched it and I said, that's the best tennis player I've ever seen play the game. And that was in the era of, you know, Sampras and Agassi and all those guys. And I have, I mean, you know, there's so much I respect about each one of those people that you mentioned. I mean, they're mm-hmm. all legends mm-hmm. in the game of tennis, but in all for different reasons. Um, 
like I loved, um, I really enjoyed um, Agassiz's book, Open. Probably one of the best. That's in the top it, five for me. So ever. it was really sad to me. Mm-hmm. Even the end and what he found was fulfilling and what life was about for him at that time felt really, really sad and lonely to me. Um, but I will tell you, Federer is hands down best tennis player I've ever seen play the game. I don't know that we'll have another. He's like a ballerina playing tennis. It's ridiculous. He yeah, makes it all look so easy. Yeah, he's the he's a the greatest combination of Sampras and Agassi together. That's a good Tremendous point. return game. He doesn't have the bomb serve that Sampras had, but it's good. It's placement. Yeah, it's placement. But he's the most cerebral dominator because he is hilarious. When you watched him and he is super prime, he stood in the center of the court and ran you sideways because the only That's place you could put it was right back in the middle of the court. That was a safe shot. He just sat there. And he didn't move, and every he wore you down. Yeah, he was a he was a brilliant. He still is a brilliant game player. Yeah, so fascinating. He's amazing. Agassi's my favorite player, and I think that Federer is the greatest player of all. Yeah, time. I have. You know, Agassi is is when you read that story, you realize most achievers are achieving out of a place of of great pain. Yeah. Like most of us have real that have had success or, or our leaders um, were abandoned and um, shamed yeah. when they were little. And, and it may be not by their parents, but mm-hmm. by something, but, you know, it, that's what and and it, it stoked the fire, it fueled that fire. That's hard for people that are successful and leaders to hear. But it's true. It's true. It's true. And so, you know, he his situation was rough. Oh. Man, and out of that came this fire. And what I did like about what I loved about the book was um, just how he rebelled to get that against that, but he really couldn't get away from it. And he realized that this is going back full circle to the beginning of our story. Like yeah. he reached the pinnacle of 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 tennis and was like, "This is all there is." Mm-hmm. Now, I did love that story in the book with because um, I love competition, whether you win or lose. I love yeah. to compete, and um, that story with Jim Courier when. He was Jim had his number, yeah, and they were in the he had beat him in three sets. He beat um, Agassi in three sets. I think it was in the U.S. Open, mm-hmm. maybe in the semifinals or finals, and they didn't even say a word. And Jim Courier put his running shoes on, as if to say, "I'm gonna go run." This wasn't enough of a workout. <laughs> <laughs> like that's still my favorite. And how mad that made. And, oh, and yeah. Agassi from that point on, I mean, he went to work, yeah, to try to beat it. That that was. That was a lot of fun. No doubt about it. That was such a great <laughs> book. You know, it's not that dissimilar than David Duvall. David Duvall mm. uh, became the number one player in the world, wins a major championship, and then wakes up the next morning and goes, well, this sucks. I'm still David Duvall. Mm. I thought that was this was going to change my life. And next, next thing you know, I wake up on Monday morning, the Open champion, champion golf for the world, and I suck, and I'm still David Duvall. And he really never recovered. Mm. You know, he's had a couple of close calls in victory, but never has never won again. After that, it's wild, isn't it? It's amazing, and I wonder if he's okay with that. I think he is now because I think one of the things that rattled his cage was how many things he sacrificed slash gave up, yeah, or gave up on, yeah, to achieve this life-altering mm-hmm. place of being the greatest golfer in the world. And when he woke up and he was still David Duvall, he I guess had a sense of humility and humanism about him. He's like, "Wow, I'm going to live an empty, shallow life." Mm-hmm. If I don't connect with people, because he was really, first of all, he had a really difficult childhood. His brother died Mm -hmm. and he was the person that gave the bone marrow to try to save his life. And he, 
and it wasn't. He still mm, passed away. It didn't work. Yeah. So he he wears that badge, which mm. is a really challenging badge to have to wear, because mm. I think he feels responsible for his brother's death. Mm. And then that then broke up his mom and his dad, and they got a divorce. And like the just the cycle of trauma, and he locked into golf. And he became he was a very difficult person to be around. I know a couple, some of the guys that were on the team at Georgia Tech. He was hated, mm. but he was so good that the coach had to take him, even though everybody hated him. And he'd shoot 61, 64, and win a college tournament by nine. And we got to take him, but he has to sit in the back of the bus and he has to listen to his headphones. He can't talk, you know. Wow, that makes me. That's interesting because he's had a bit of redemption out oh. of that story, and I, I wonder if that's going to happen for Patrick Reed because when you were saying that. That same story is kind of playing out for him right yeah, now. Minus the cheating piece, it is definitely <laughs> the same. Like he can't seem to fit in, and he doesn't know. Like, and he's uneasy with himself. Yeah, and it's not anybody else's fault. And Patrick Reed is totally looking like a person. How much longer can he be blind yeah. to himself? Yeah, that's a big challenge. I think he's going to face when he doesn't have his game anymore. Mm. He's still an elite player, and he's still got a ton of game. As well, much as I can't player. stand him, yeah. As much as I can't stand him, the guy can flat out still play. And why he feels the need to cheat to stay there, yeah, is a unique storyline for his life. Well, it makes total sense why he would do that. If he has great pain in his life, we we don't we, we may not know what it is. He'll do anything to stay in the place that he's in. Oh yeah. Right. There's the beautifully said. So here's the here's the thing that I've learned about people. That's a hard thing to learn is that people that are backed in a corner will make decisions to get out of that corner that are out of alignment with their day to day character, their actual character. Like I would wonder for him, like where or anybody that's making choices like that, like that's coming from a place of real pain and hurt for them because they're trying to hold on to something, and they're making decisions that may be outside of their normal character. I, I'm not saying there aren't bad people. Yeah. I think there are some people that are just really rough and not good. But yeah. I think for most of us, you know, we're a mix of good and bad, right? Yeah. And um, I think, unfortunately, when we're put, like, you start thinking about these big questions, like, well, what would you do if your family had nothing? And your only choice was to, you know, go and steal food. Like, what would you do? If your kids couldn't eat, like we would, I would hope that I wouldn't make a choice to steal. Yeah, but right? we, we can't guarantee But we that. really don't know. Like we're, we can't model out that situation. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you don't know how you would pass that test. Absolutely. And right. so I try when I watch him or I watch other people, I, I feel something different these days than I might have when I was younger. I might have, I might have been really frustrated about that or, you know, but I, I just, it makes me wonder like, what's going on? Yeah. Like what's going on, man? No doubt. Like what are you doing? Like what are you doing? Desperate people do and say desperate things. Yeah, they do. Desperation is a. Very, we all do, right? Yeah, desperation is a very powerful negative impactor on the human psyche. Yeah, very interesting. Last question. Yeah. This is this year marks the 150th year of college football, and they just did this huge long list of the greatest players ever, <laughs> and they gave the greatest college football player to Herschel Walker. Interesting. My question is, I didn't agree with that. Do you believe the greatest college football player, I got the four, Bo Jackson, Herschel Walker, 
Barry Sanders huh. or Doug Flutie? Who's the greatest college football player to you? So, I mean, I would have said Bo Sanders. That's what I mean. Barry Sanders? Sorry, no, 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 Jackson. no. Bo Jackson. Sorry. Bo Sanders. Well, that's a new guy. <laughs> a, he's an he, awesome he was player. number six. <laughs> <laughs> no, Bo Jackson. That's who, I, that would have been my immediate response. Um, greatest athlete I, of my lifetime. Because I think he's the greatest athlete. Now, whether or not he's the greatest football player, I don't know all the data. So, uh, this is the, Mark's 150th year of college football. And they just announced that Herschel Walker was the greatest college football player of all time. And I didn't agree with it. So you get the choice. So you get my selection, which is, is it Bo Jackson, Herschel Walker, Barry Sanders, or Doug Flutie is the greatest college football player? So my answer is Bo Jackson, because I think he's the greatest athlete that I've ever seen. Yeah. And I think that we will probably ever see. Um, but I actually like the Herschel Walker example. If you remember, I'm a mm-hmm. I'm a Cowboys fan, so oh yeah, um, I have a little bit of bias influencing me. But I really don't know who the best football player of all time was because I don't track all the stats. Yeah. So I'm sure this will be debated and argued. But I'm I'm going to choose you know Bo Jackson just because I've see, the stuff that you see him do that we all saw him do, and I think he continued like I like didn't he like shoot a bow and arrow with his foot. Or so, he's, yeah, he's a crazy he's a freak. He's a freak athlete in a great way, um, and so that that it. would be my answer. To that I love it. Well, Troy, <laughs> I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your busy schedule. Yeah, honored to, to be to here, come man. on on the verge and uh, get my season started off great. So hey, I and I'll it. tell you one last thing. I'll yep. say for you, um, I'd never taken a golf golf lesson until I was forty, and you were the first guy that I took a lesson to. And in, as a tribute to your skill. As a coach and as a leader, um, you immediately you may be, I put you in the category of even though I haven't had like a million lessons from you, mm-hmm. is one of the best coaches I've ever been around. Well, you're very kind, and and here's why: you immediately made it about me and connected it to tennis, and took me back to what I knew about tennis, and started bringing that movement back. And every time I come in, it's I feel like instead of you try you don't view coaching like you're moving a boulder. I think you view coaching like you're moving rocks yeah. from one pile to the other. And every te- every every time I've come to you, it's like one other pebble <laughs> that you're moving. <laughs> and so that's what makes a great coach, man. So, so I have I a lot of respect for you and Thank appreciate. You. Um, getting to know you over the last few years has been a lot of fun. But you're the best, buddy. I can't say you know. Thanks. <laughs> See you, bro. Yeah, man.